Now, for a long time, um, Kevin has been taking us through the book of Hebrews, uh, and we've just come to the end of it. But in that last chapter, Hebrews 13, particularly verses 4 and 5, you'll recall where um, Kevin took us through the applications around two very relatable topics, the marriage bed and finances, money. And um, I don't know about you, but I was particularly touched by, by that sermon. Thank you, Kevin, for that. It was, it was really strong. And so what I wanted to do, knowing that I was teaching today, I actually wanted to take one of those topics, in particular money, and, and go to the Gospels and to see what our Lord Jesus has to say about it himself as well. And it turns out that he's got a lot to say about money, a lot. It's estimated that for every three or four parables Jesus taught, one of them had money within the theme somewhere. So obviously it's, it's an important subject for him and for us. And then you get to Luke chapter 16, the passage that David kindly read for us earlier on, the parable of the dishonest manager. And there's the look on your face as you read that. You think, hang on a second. Christians are to copy a, a crook here? Really? You know, there's it's a bit of unbelief in, in what we're reading firsthand. Now, this is known to be one of the most, maybe if not, baffling of Jesus' parables. Um, but like all parables Jesus taught, there is a point. There's always a point. Now, I'll say up front, I'm going to labor this teacher. I really will. I have to, even though the passage might not seem like it's really long, but there's so much to draw from it. Um, so please, please stay with me on this. Um, it's, a, it's an important parable for a couple of reasons. Number one, we need to know what it means, right? Straight up, we need to know what it means. We need to know what Jesus is saying, and we need to do it, just like any other part of Holy Scripture, right? So that's a given. But number two, this is a text that many who love to try and discredit Scripture and point out its apparent contradictions and um, the fact that it is not the inerrant Word of God. They like to point to this text, so it's really important that we get at least a basic grasp of it so that we're equipped. So nevertheless, I want to open up this parable with you, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate us to what he's saying through this story and that he will stir up our hearts accordingly. Let me, let, let me pray. Father God, we thank you again for uh, giving us this wonderful day and this opportunity to gather together as your people uh, in your temple, Lord. We know you are here, Father, and we, we do this in full honor of you. We want to give you all the glory and the praise, Father. Help me to, 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 to speak uh, what you would want for your people to hear, and, and let, us, let us do your will, Lord, in, in accordance to what we read here today. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you've turned your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, we're looking at verses 1 to 13, the parable of the dishonest manager. Now let's start off by stating some of the questions that people tend to ask about the story. Number one, is Jesus really commending to his believers a crooked man, an immoral man who seems to be ripping off his own boss? Another might ask, is Jesus telling us to make friends using unethical methods and then be welcomed to heaven by these friends? 
I thought eternal life was free. I thought that it was granted by God alone. Now here's another one. What exactly have those other wisdom-like applications got to do with the whole story at the end? What's that to do with the actual parable? So I think we'll get around some of these dilemmas and see how to apply this story by looking at how Jesus uses the central character in the story to teach us that crook, who he calls the dishonest manager. And he does this by making two basic comparisons. And we'll come back to this, but I'm going to state my two points now. Firstly, Jesus compares the manager's kind of foresight to our kind of foresight. That's the first comparison. Second comparison can be said like this. Jesus compares the manager's type of heart to our type of heart. So I'll come back to those points, and those are the things that we'll be talking about. But firstly, let's recap this story. Verse 1 of chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So in verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Luke, the author, writes that Jesus also told them this particular parable, which means that he's been telling them other parables, and now he's arrived at a new teaching unit. And this series of parables that Jesus has been telling his disciples actually start in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. If you want to turn there, in chapter 15, it says, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them three parables before this one. The ones that we know. Parable of the, the lost sheep. Parable of the lost coin. Parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. If you notice, there's an increase in the value of the subjects of those parables. First, it's that sheep. Then something worth a little bit more than sheep, the lost coin. Then something worth more than that, the lost son or the prodigal son. These are the lost and found parables which we know and love very much. And the Pharisees, they were there listening to all this, and they're also still there when Jesus finishes telling, finishing, um, telling this particular parable. In our parable, chapter 16, look at verse 14. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So they were still there and they're within earshot of Jesus telling the parable of the dishonest manager. So we get to our parable and then in this our parable, we're introduced to two characters. One is a rich man, a very wealthy man who probably does not live on his estate. And also we're introduced to the manager of the estate. Now, back then, very wealthy individuals would hire stewards, managers, to look after their financial and business affairs. Pretty much like how we have it today. High net worth individuals who would hire wealth managers from the world's top financial institutions to look after their assets. This is a concept that both the original hearers and we here ourselves today probably are familiar with, at least are aware of. Now, the word for manager is oikonomos. Guess what we get from that today? Our word economics, economy. And it takes its root from two other words, the word for law and the word for house. So this manager is literally, he's like the law of the house. Nothing happens without him knowing or approving. 
especially if it was to do with finances. I know this is just a parable and this is a character, but the circumstances are very familiar. Now, this was a, a very high post, and it was often awarded to people that were reliable, that were frugal, that were trustworthy. And the oikonomos, the manager, was a person to whom the proprietor, the owner, has entrusted the management of his affairs, care of receipts, expenditures, the duty of uh, dealing out the servants' wages, basically does timesheets for everyone as well. And in some cases, they would also give out money to the children of the wealthy person if they resided in the home, who are not yet of age. So there's a massive amount of responsibility for such a manager. This could have been a slave that was trained for the role specifically, or it might have been a free man, but the post was very high. If you've um, watched Downton Abbey, this is a sort of Mr. Carson role. It's Mr. Carson to, to Robert Crowley. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about here. Now, we quickly learn that the manager has been accused or had charges brought against him in some of your translations um, because he's been wasting his boss's resources, and that boss has found out. Now, the Greek word used for accused or the report or charges is diabolo, yeah, where we get our word diabolic. So it literally means actually to thrust through or to defame or to inform against. And it appears only once in the New Testament, just here. The word for wasting is the same word that was used for the prodigal son in the parable before that, diascorpizio. And it means to squander, to dissipate, to, and it appears nine times in the New Testament. So even before the story has gone anywhere, right, we know that the manager is a dishonest kind of person. He doesn't show care for his boss's property because he's been wasting it. Might have been drawing it for himself, handling it callously. Doesn't sound like he's just been sleeping on the job because the nature of the accusations are diabolical. He's been doing something evil. Whatever he's been doing, it's been calculated, it's intentional, it's grievous, and it's led to a waste of his boss's resources. And now he's been found out. In verse 2, the boss interrogates him. He says, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the boss is interrogating him, but not for too long, because his mind is already made up, and he effectively fires the manager. The way he asks him, what's this I hear about you, it carries with it a sense that he's already believed the accusations about this manager. And so the boss anticipates that, you know, he's, he, even the records that the manager kept are going to, you know, confirm the charges. I think that was, you know, my opinion, a little bit of a stupid move there. Because if you're going to fire someone who's already dishonest, get them out straight away. This loophole, this, this, let's call it handover period, gives him a bit of opportunity, an opportunity to do something. And in verse 3, we read, And the manager said to himself, What should I do since my master has taken the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do in verse 4, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. The manager now knows he's on the streets. He's about to lose not just his home, his job, but his reputation. And he decides to put his mind to work. He's focused on maximizing his future interests. So he does some problem solving. He states, 
He states the problem and he analyzes a couple of solutions, possible solutions. Now, having crookedly milked a good life for himself out of this high-paying white-collar job, he's now thinking option one, manual labor. Now, this it's not for me. I'm too feeble. Maybe he's probably too lazy to do that. He wouldn't survive five minutes of it. And he weighs up option two, which is go begging. He said, no, I haven't trained for, for this to go and you know be on the streets. That's for plebs. So he discards that particular option. And then he strikes gold. He has a eureka moment. The solution stares him in the face. It's brilliant. It's so simple. If I get my boss's debtors to reduce their debts and reduce their debts, they'll see me as generous. And they'll owe me favors. I'm bound to be welcomed into someone's home. Hopefully, I'll get another job like this, maybe even better. That's my future sorted. That's the kind of thing that he was thinking. Because whatever come, comes next for him, whether it actually be jail or a beating, which is pos possible, but so long as he has his life intact, he's able to still draw on those favors someday. It's very Godfather-esque, you know, because he'll tell these people one day, don't forget what I've done for you. That's the sort of thing. And that's exactly what he does. He calls these guys in, the debtors, one by one, reduces their debts. Now, Jesus gives us examples of two clients that he did these transactions with, but I think the implication is that he did this with every single one of them. Just look at this discount scheme in verses 5 to 7. These are no small sums, because for these debtors to run up such large debts, they must have been very, very wealthy people themselves, not just some kind of tenant living on the property. They don't owe a bit of rent. They owe what it takes to run large-scale operations. These were people from the same economic level as the rich man himself, and the manager knows this. He knows it very well. That's why he wants to become their best buddy because they could employ him. Now, in verse 5, we read, With the first debtor, a hundred measures of oil. This is olive oil. And many commentators have estimated that this is the yield of about 150 olive trees, about nearly a thousand gallons of oil. Basically, this is worth about five years of a, labor, a laborer's wages. And that gets slashed in half. You can imagine the, the relief on that debtor's face. How would you feel if your bank called you up? Your mortgage provider says, Dad, we've been assessing your case, and I think uh, we'll slash your mortgage in half. You'd be delighted, elated. This is what he was doing with these guys. And the other example, 100 measures of wheat. That's nearly 4,000 liters of wheat from 100 acres of land. That's a... That's a lot. That's about 15 years of wages for an average laborer. That's the amount of debt that particular debtor was carrying. And that gets a 20% reduction. Huge sum. And just these two examples, commentators estimate that this is worth nine years' salary. Nine years' salary for the average laborer. Huge. And he did this with every single one of the debtors. Now, did the debtors know that he... The manager was already fired. Were they accomplices to his scheme? It's highly unlikely because in an honor society like this, where your name, where your reputation was highly prized, 
They wouldn't have done business with him knowing that he wasn't a legal representative of the boss. And notice how he does these transactions really quietly, swiftly, secretly. You know, we, have, we see scammers today. Sign here, quick, 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 quick. Deal's going to run out. You have two days. That's the sort of thing that he was doing. Very, very quickly. He implicates them, even though they're not aware, and he gets them to rewrite their own debts. To make it look official, above board. It's psychological as well, because they know how much they owe. He knows how much they owe. But when he gets them to write them again, they'll be so happy that they're realizing the true value of what they're getting. They won't ask, ask any questions. Then we get to verse 8. And we read, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. <clears throat> now we don't know how word gets around, but it did. Obviously, this guy is clever, but he didn't cover his tracks too well. But word gets around, and this ex-boss, you know, the ex-boss, the rich man, he finds out. Now, what do you expect will happen at this point in our story? So far, there's a little bit of logic in, in the sequence of things. You can understand what's going on, the manager's predicament. He got himself into that predicament, and he's weighed up his options, and he's done what he's done to try and work out a better situation for himself. So you think, now that the boss has found out, you naturally think he's going to send in the heavies and break this thieving, conniving person in half. Or he's going to take him to the law courts and finish him off legally. Wrong. And this is where Jesus shocks us. He shocks not just his hearers, he shocks us today with what comes next. The dishonest manager gets commended for shrewdness. What? And the parable ends there in the first part of verse 8. That's the story itself. And as if to make things more difficult for us, Jesus sanctions it by saying that believers could be more shrewd themselves. Take a leaf out of this guy's book. And here's where the fuses in our minds get blown. A bit of implosion going on. Because it's where we have that problem. Did Jesus really commend this crook to us? Surely he didn't, did he? Did he? And people have come up with all kinds of theories to explain the science behind this discount program that the manager carried out. I think it's an attempt to try and rescue Jesus from his own parable. You know, to try and make the dishonest manager seem a little bit more of a good guy so that there is something to commend of him and his behavior. Let's try and find out something about this, these theories. I think there are three main views that you will commonly hear about this. The first is that the manager was removing the interest that the boss had added to the debts. Because in the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to add interest in certain circumstances to uh, capital when you were lending money out. So in this view, you're saying that actually the rich boss was the one that was doing something illegal. He'd added interest illegally. And then this manager was removing that interest. Turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 37. And it says... If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, 
you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. So we can see where some people are coming from. In this view, then, the, the rich man has added illegal interest, and the manager is taking that interest off. But in our passage, when we read that manager's soliloquy, where he says, what shall I do? And he's weighing up his options. It's purely self-motivated. It really is. Besides, the laws, like the ones that we just read, they were there to protect those who had become poor. Wasn't this manager trying or hoping that one of these debtors would put him up? They can't be that poor. There isn't a righteous thought in there. Secondly, you'll hear this, that the manager removed his own commission from those rates. So whatever the debtors owed, a hundred, what he removed, that was his commission. That was supposed to be his commission. So he sacrifices none of his boss's capital. And we can see where that's coming from. Back in the day, there were tax collectors, and they used to collect the dues from people, citizens, and they would add their own commission on top. People like Zacchaeus, who we'd read of. Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, was a tax collector as well. And they were hated because they used to rip people off. So we're saying that something similar is going on here, that a manager, an oikonomos, would be paid through commissions like this. But again, if we look at his soliloquy in verses 3 and 4, when he's weighing up his options, can you really say that he is thinking about other people? He's thinking about himself, really. Besides, if he had commissions the size of what we talked about, nine years' worth of wages, he wouldn't be a steward. He would be a rich man himself. We wouldn't have this parable. So we're just not sure. Now, the third and final very common view is the traditional view, the straightforward reading of Scripture. The manager was downright ripping off his boss by lowering those debts. He was winning new friends, the boss's own clients, at the boss's own expense. Some opponents would say, but it's inconceivable that he would be commended because he's ripping off the boss twice. Surely the boss would hunt him down. Surely the boss would take him to court. Now, I don't know what resonates with you, but the fact of the matter is that we don't know how the story really ends. Jesus stopped where he stopped because it was enough for him to make the point that he wants to make. And the point that he's making, we'll see, is not to do with justice or being punished for wrongdoing. Not really. He could have continued to make that kind of point, but he didn't, which means that there is something else that he wants us to see, something else that he wants to teach us. If you want justice... Go ahead and read Luke 18, yeah, the persistent widow and the unjust judge. You'll see it there. This is where you have to understand that the shock element in Jesus' parables are just that, shocking, because we think he's going one direction, but then he takes us or forces us to look somewhere else. It's shocking. It's jarring. 
but it makes his point. So when you look at these three options, or three options, I'll suggest to you that actually either of these options could lead to the manager getting commended. Jesus is not as bothered with the science behind the discount program as he is with the urgency, the determination, and the foresight that the manager demonstrated. This is a parable. The details don't need to be pressed like dogmatically. These people are not real people, even if their circumstances are ones that the hearers or we here today can relate to. Look, if the manager removed illegal interest rates or his commission, then, yeah, there would be some righteousness being shown there, which in itself actually is a shock, considering the fact that we learn about him straight away that he is a dishonest kind of person. How does a dishonest person do something that is righteous? It's not consistent. And we learn that he's a waster. But I can see how the boss would commend the manager for cleverly making friends himself for himself if he didn't lose his capital. He's probably made it easier to collect that debt. I understand that. But let's look at verse 8 a little bit closer. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Jesus didn't say that the master commended this, the dishonest manager for his dishonesty or for his immorality. That would be a contradiction. He didn't say that. The master in the story knows that this manager is dishonest, but he is commending something else, not the dishonesty. So let's ask the question this way. If the dishonest manager really was ripping off the boss, you know, the traditional view, you know, if he was really being unethical, could the boss still commend him for being shrewd, for being astute, for being wise, prudent? The answer is yes. It has to be, right? Who's seen the movie The Italian Job? Might have seen the original version. I've seen the 2003 version with Mark Wahlberg and those guys. Well, in a nutshell, that story, it starts off with a handful of crooks, right? They pull off a heist, stealing millions of dollars worth of gold bullion in, in Italy. Successfully, they pull it off. And they decide to meet up in the Alps, uh, where they can celebrate it in seclusion and divvy it up. So they get into a truck with all the gold in it. And as they go off, each imagining what they'll do with their share, suddenly some other armored trucks pull up from nowhere and surround them. So there's their truck, they're inside, and then you've got a ring of other trucks with guns pointing at them. And then one of the heist associates from inside the truck, that, where they're all gathered, pulls out a gun and points it at his colleagues. And he says something to the effect, you, you don't think that you were the only ones making plans, did you? And he kills one of them, gets away with all the money, They've all worked so hard to steal. And the whole movie is about how the team of crooks tried to get their plunder back. Now, look, there is absolutely nothing ethical about the movie, right? About their behavior, because it starts with theft. It ends up with the retrieval of what's stolen by those who stole it in the first place. But when the traitor gets away with the money, you can't help but say, okay, nice touch. The guy's clever. The guy's clever. <laughs> he, even though he's tricked his own fellow crooks even one of the associates says something like that nice touch, nice touch but it's not over and there are countless movies and 
situations like that, that that have these kind of scenarios. Look, what we're essentially saying is very simple. Whether one interpretation is better than the other, me personally, I believe Scripture always has one meaning yeah, to everything. It is possible to still identify a characteristic and isolate it. That's what's happened here. It's possible to see what's shrewd in that context and focus on that and talk about that. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's seen a characteristic and he's commended it to his people. So let's apply Jesus' applications of verse 8, B, and 9. And this is where I make that first comparison. Jesus is comparing the manager's type of foresight to our type of foresight. In other words, we are to discern whether we take the future seriously. That's the point. It doesn't really matter whether this discount scheme was good for the manager's boss or not. We're not to focus on the ethics of that discount scheme, but we're to focus on the foresight, the foresight that is required to make a move that ensures a, a stable, a secure, and a good future. The reason the boss commends this now ex-manager in verse 8 is because he acted shrewdly. You see, this manager saw a hugely significant and inevitable event on the horizon. What was that he saw? A redundancy. A redundancy. And he utilized all the resources available to him to try and ensure that his next life would be a stable and a good and a secure one. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He knows how the sinful world works. You know, they'll crawl over each other, the sons of this age, the sons of this world. They'll crawl over each other, find any possible or impossible means to try and get a loophole to get ahead, to protect numero uno at whatever cost. And they'll put their minds to work in any way to achieve these selfish ends. Could Jesus make the same point with the same weight if the guy was acting out of righteousness in verse 5 to 7? So he says, if people of this world, the sons of this age, can maximize their own future interests for this world which is passing, shouldn't we Christians maximize our future interests for heaven to come? And in this sense, Jesus is saying we just need to be a lot shrewder because we're a little bit wet behind the ears on this point. We're a little bit immature on that point. The manager, the son of this age, has more foresight regarding sorting himself out in this life than Christians do regarding heaven. It's a point, but it's also a rebuke. Now, all of us here today, every single one of us, we have, just like that manager, a hugely significant and inevitable event appearing on the horizon. It's riding towards us. It's death, and after that, judgment and the afterlife. Where is our foresight about preparing for that? Christians, are we living, though, as though this world was you know, were all there is? And even if you are prudent by conventional means, you know, saving and all these things, is it just so that you can have better careers, better houses, better cars, retire well, retire in peace? Is it only for this life? Now, there's nothing wrong with doing those things we ought to we are stewards as we, as we'll see but the question is which future are we preparing for with priority your old age or the endless age that's the question here 
Or are some of you living as though there is no limit on time? You know, as if nothing is appearing on the horizon. Are you being just completely wasteful? Living as though you've got all the time to laze about, waste about. Have you been caught up in the daily grind of life that you forget that eternity is facing you? Do you even care about the rewards for God's people in heaven? Preparing for our future in heaven is what we're supposed to do. Now, what do you know about the doctrine of rewards? That's the point Jesus is saying. Because salvation is granted to all believers free because of grace. However, in heaven, there are different degrees of reward. Did you know that? If we didn't, that's why we need to be a little bit more shrewd on these kind of things to help us prepare for that. We are, you know, we're a little bit wet behind the ears on that doctrine. And Jesus is saying we pale behind unbelievers who prepare better for themselves on earth than we do for in heaven. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, <coughs> verses 11 to 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 <coughs> to 15, and I'll read. Paul writes here, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but, uh, but only as through fire. You will be in heaven if you're a believer. That's not, the, that's not the point. It's about the reward element. And we're here being taught to prepare for that so that we just don't forfeit our reward in that sense. And in our parable, Jesus is asking Christians, why don't you use the resources you have now to sort yourself out for their life to come? To use your resources to produce gold standard output here on earth so that in heaven you'll get gold standard rewards. That's shrewd. That's what our Lord is saying. That is shrewd. And the resources he has in mind here for us to use, he's talking about our very wealth and our very money. Are you a forward thinker when it comes to that? That's the point Jesus is making. And in verse 9, where we read, and I tell you, make friends for yourself. Now you see, Jesus is going to spell out a tactic that we are to use in becoming clever with regards to money and wealth. However much or however little you have. And it's generosity. And, and, and that is the way Jesus tells us to do it. Now, granted, verse 9 is a complicated sentence because some of our problems with this story are because we just don't know what to do with this sentence. But take a closer look. Making friends. The way the manager made friends for himself was all about generosity. Dishonest to you and I reading this story, crooked by all means, but from the debtor's point of view, the debt was significantly less. He's generous to them. The manager is, you know, Jesus is not saying that we should use unethical methods to make friends, but we can be generous in our, in our giving and in our usage of money. So he's saying make friends by giving and sharing your wealth. You know, a great picture of that comes from the early church in Acts chapter 4, where believers share their possessions and use their money and wealth to serve and to love one another. 
We're to be generous among ourselves as Christians, but also for, with all people for the sake of the gospel. And this is the way the, the Lord wants us to view money and wealth, just as a resource that we use to serve others. That, that's just how he wants us to view it. Do you remember the rich fool in Luke 12? The one who was concentrated on building barns to keep and hoard all his stuff. As Kevin put it, when he was preaching through, through that, made reference to that, you know, he has stuff and he buys stuff to keep his stuff in. It's just accumulation over accumulation. Do, do you remember Nicodemus in John 3? The young rich man who was asking Jesus about the new life. And Jesus said, well, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he went away disheartened because he had much wealth. These are examples of people who had the wrong perspective on wealth and the use of wealth. They had an idolatrous relationship with money, and that's not how we're supposed to be. Money, or mammon, which is the Aramaic word for money, is called unrighteous here, unrighteous wealth. Jesus uses those words, not because it's evil in and of itself, but think about it. It's because of the unrighteous attitudes that the pursuit of wealth can sometimes produce in people, isn't it? A commentator called Daryl Bock, he writes, if money were inherently unrighteous, then all use of it would be evil. Imagine going down to the shop to buy a pint of milk. That's evil, right? Yeah. Fill up your car. That's evil. You've used money. Do you see? It, that's not the point. I think the attitude reflected here is similar to what Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, that the, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is evil, unrighteous, because it brings out distorted views in people. Yeah. When some people have money, or when they don't actually, yeah, they become selfish, they take advantage of others, they can be unfaithful to God. And so notice, Jesus says, when it fails, when it fails. Or in some translations, it says, when you fail. If you've got the wrong <laughs> perspective on money, it will fail, and you will fail with it, do you see? But either case, it is something that cannot be relied on, cannot be depended on, it shouldn't define us. Why? Because it's just a resource. We use it, it runs out. We're not to have an excessive attachment to it. So it's better not to be attached to the pursuit of wealth. Now, what about the they may receive you? That part of verse 9. And you know, yes, there is a very real sense that, you know, if you've used your, your resources to invest in the lives of people, you know, um, you print out tracts out of your own pocket to give to people that you meet. I know some people here do that. That's great. You go and visit a distant friend who's going through problems, you know, up in the north. That's using your resources to go and be with them, to, 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 to witness to them, particularly if they're, if they're unbelievers and you show care for them to, to invest in their lives in some way, shape or form. It takes money. These people, should they pass before you and enter the gates of heaven before you, when you arrive, there is a very real sense that they'll say, you know, thanks to you, you know, your, your, your ministry really touched me. I, I appreciate the time that you spent with me. I know it cost you a lot to go from here all the way to come and see me, but I saw the Christ you served through that, and, 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 and it made that even more real to me. There is a sense that these people will thank you. They'll be there to, to thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for what you've done for the seed that you've sown, and all these kind of things. That's very, very true. But Christ is the one that welcomes us into heaven. 
Yeah, his, his arms are the first ones to embrace us when we enter glory. And there is a, um, a literary term called circumlocution. All it means is that you're using another word to describe a different word or idea. An indirect way of saying something. Kind of like, if you're good, Santa will buy you a toy. You know Santa is I. The subject here is God himself. Is God himself. Look at Ephesians 2 with me. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, <clears throat> For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast. So we know straight away that, look, this is not something that we purchase. Heaven is granted to us purely on grace alone. And that's a theological truth that cannot be compromised, right? So salvation and entrance to heaven is granted by God alone through the shedding of Christ's precious blood for sinners like you and for me. The Bible never contradicts itself. That's not the point here about how we get into heaven. God's people are simply being encouraged to make friends here on earth using our resources in the way Christ deems shrewd by being generous with it, while bearing in mind the heavenly rewards that they will receive from God himself because they had been generous. So generosity is evidence that you are saved, not a passport to becoming saved. Does that make sense? So you might say, hmm, be generous with your financial resources. Okay, I get it. I hear it. But is that it? I mean... When you say that, the problem is you don't see why it's shrewd to be generous with money, which is what Jesus is effectively saying. Now, look, the world may not acknowledge generosity as shrewd, but to God, it is shrewd. Look at verses 14 and 15 of, the, of our parable in Luke 16. Right at the end of our parable, just a little bit beyond it, 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They were laughing at Jesus. They heard these things, him talking about generosity, you know, implicating, implying generosity. And they're laughing at him. The word for that ridiculed him is literally holding their noses up to him. They're snobbing him. They're, they're, they're just thinking that this is stupid. But, you know, what God values isn't what men value. And Christians, we need to value what God values, even if it's costly now. It's shrewd and it's clever in God's eyes, and that's what's more important. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to become like the very Pharisees that are stood there listening. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want his disciples, he doesn't want us to fall into an idolatrous relationship with wealth. So it's significant that he tells them this parable within earshot of these Pharisees. And look what Jesus has to say to these Pharisees when they ridicule him. In verse 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These people have got the wrong end of the stick. They've got the wrong hold on wealth. And that's why Jesus says that. So Jesus is teaching that we must have the kind of foresight that the manager had by maximizing our future interests in light of eternity for the sake of being rewarded. And we do that by being generous with our wealth and money. That's how we apply verses 8 and 9. Now, lastly, what do we do about those 
verses in between 10 and 13, those kind of wisdom sayings, are they even anything to do with the story that had just gone before it? So let's look at Jesus' second comparison, which is our second and our final point. And that is, Jesus compares the manager's type of heart to our type of heart. In other words, we're being challenged to discern where our loyalties lie. Now you might say, okay, I get it, I get it. Be generous with your possessions and wealth. That's the perspective of our our Lord. Yep, I see that. But you know what? I I haven't got much. Um, So if I had more, I'd give more, for sure, definitely. And and some of us, (laughs) we know that saying very well, don't we? And by the way, I I preach all of this to you today with, with a boomerang. Because if it's come around, these applications have come around and struck your heart, know that it's coming back to strike mine as well. I stand under this very teaching myself. And here Jesus is teaching us about being faithful, being loyal. These are the deepest matters of the heart. It's about your character. It's about your affections, where your love is. See, if the manager is dishonest with one boss, right, even if he can take care of himself after that and wangle his way into a a next life somewhere, the question is, will he be dishonest with another boss? And Jesus is saying, well, yes. Well, yeah. What one is here with this? He will be there with that. Yeah, the emphasis is not about where you are or how much you've got or what you've got. It's about you. Jesus is looking squarely into our eyes here. It's about us. So far, we've been shown what to do with the thing. Money, wealth. Be generous with it. Now we're being shown what we do in the handling, how we ought to be. And we know how this manager is in the story. We said the primary characteristic of this guy, all the way back in verse 1, is that he's dishonest. His heart is of that type. And in verse 8, when Jesus refers to the dishonest manager, when he calls him a dishonest manager, he's calling him that because we know that from the very beginning. He didn't need to go and rip off the boss's debtors or give them deals for us to see that he was dishonest. He was dishonest before that. So what he does there is consistent with his nature. He is ripping off his, his own boss by giving these discounts. He's dishonest. And so Jesus is saying, look, he's applying this story to us so that we can realize that we ourselves are stewards, just like that manager. We're stewards of what he has given to us. And we're challenged to discern the condition of our hearts in relation to what we've been given and he uses these great, lesser to greater arguments. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Faithless with money, faithless with true riches. Faithless with what someone else is, who's going to even give you your own? This is, this is the rewards that we're talking about. It's like buying a, a toy for your child. You, you buy them a toy that they've really wanted, and you know, not long after they've got it, They're putting it on the corner of the table where it can fall and break. They've lost it. Take it to school. They don't clean it, put it in its case. And then later, they come to you and say, Oh, Dad, can I have that other toy? And it's more expensive. And you think, Well, I've kind of seen how you handle this one. I'm a little bit apprehensive about investing in this for you right now. You've got a few lessons to learn first. This is the sort of thing that our Lord is telling us. 
and, 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 and you've got the either and or in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't love both. It's, it's impossible. Jesus wants his disciples to have a faithful heart because that's the kind of person that he will be on the lookout for when he comes back again. So if we've been given little and we aren't faithful with that, then we're not going to be faithful with a lot that he wants to give us. And heaven is about much. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus is talking about loyalties in verse 13. Because if, like the manager in verse 1, we treat carelessly what he's given to us, however much or little we have, then we are showing disdain to God. and We're not serving him. But here's the question. Why is it God against money? God versus money in verse 13. Why is it that combination? Well, isn't money a major idol for most of us? Maybe some of us here tonight, you know. They say, if you live 80 years, apparently 50 of those years will be spent thinking about money. More if you don't even have money, because you tend to think about it more that way. But that's, that's, that's insane, you know. It's, it's, it's there. When we examine most of our motives, isn't money, isn't that idol lurking behind somewhere? If the manager wasn't wasteful in verse 1, then he would be proving that he loved and he served his boss. And the fact that he wasn't indicates that, and using Jesus' own language, it indicates that he hated his boss, that he despised him. So we're to be really careful, Christians. We're to be careful. Where is our heart? We cannot serve both God and wealth. Cannot say you serve God and also have an idolatrous relationship with possessions, with wealth and money. Now, someone might say, hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I have two jobs, two different jobs. You know, I work in McDonald's on a Wednesday, and I work at Rick Stein's restaurant on, on a Thursday. That works out pretty good. That's like serving two bosses. What do you have to say about that? Well, okay, the, those two bosses probably have the same objectives for you, right? They're both concerned with you making it on time on the days that they've stipulated, and, 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 you know, you're, you're getting on okay. But what if one day Rick, Ricky turns to you and said, hey, hang on a second, um, our sous chef is ill and I need you to come in on a Wednesday. Now all of a sudden you've got a problem. And that's just a light problem. That's just a light situation. What Jesus is saying is let's go beyond this and look at the two masters that he's talking about, God and money. Money, which we know is also easily tainted by the values of this world. What does it say to you? It says... Make more, chase more, keep more. I'll make you happy. I'll give you whatever you want. Now, what does God say? Give, give, give. Sell what you have, give. They are diametrically opposed. That's why it never works out. So why God versus mammon? Because unlike the McDonald's and Rick Stein worker, who can make that arrangement work most of the time, these two masters, on the other hand, are very different. Very different. One says give, the other says take. And therefore, it's impossible to be loyal to both at the same time. I think it will be a travesty if we fail as stewards, as Christian stewards, to handle this unrighteous wealth, this, you know, 
money, which is temporary, which is not ours. So let's be generous with it. Let's, let's not love it. Make a lot of it if you can, but don't worship it. Be shrewd with it. Be prudent with it, but don't be dictated by it. And these are, these are matters deep to the heart. They're semi-permanent features because they're about character. And we know that character doesn't usually change that easily. That's why Jesus says what you are in one situation, you are in another. So we ought to pray more for our character. We need to take holiness seriously in relation to this because that's the Holy Spirit working in us to make us have the character of Christ. Even the character of Christ in relation to wealth and possessions and money. You know, we obey what we love. If you love your wealth, you'll do anything for the sake of it. You've become a servant to it. If you love God, you'll do anything for his sake. You're his servant. Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ in Romans 1. Strong, strong language. Can you say that of yourself? If you struggle between the two, namely trying to serve God and love God, yet still having a distorted view of money and wealth and possessions and materialism, then, and I know Christians struggle with that, a lot of them, there's a lot of sympathy, but the way Luke writes this passage and pens the words of this story, I don't think he gives any halfway positions. There are no excuses for compromising on this issue. So how do we wrap this all up then? Jesus wants us to be faithful stewards because simply he's coming again. If you were to read on to chapter 17 of Luke, verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. On the way to Jerusalem. Now, there will be more stories that Luke will write. But essentially, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem because he is going to be crucified. He's going to die bearing the sins of his people. He's going to rise up. He's going to ascend to heaven. And it's significant that this particular teaching and what follows it straight away, which is the rich man and Lazarus, they all have wealth and the future entwined. Because the love of riches chokes out the seed of the gospel and makes it unfruitful. So Jesus wants us to be careful, careful stewards in his absence. Money is something that we need to factor into our theology and have a correct understanding of it. Because it's all around us in this world, and it's very easy to fall into its trappings as well. So how we use money is important as Christians, and our wisdom with regards to wealth has eternal significance. I also hope that no one's thinking that Jesus is having a go at wealthy people either because in Luke 19, that's the story of Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector, a rich person. And that's an example of how a rich person can enter the kingdom. He's a positive example. Positive example. He, he, he's ripped off a whole bunch of people and he gives them back what well, he should have given them back or never stolen, but he gives them even more, four times. He's extra generous to them. So it's significant that that's also in the the, the passages uh, related to this. Remember before this one, Jesus was telling three parables about the eternal value there is in the sin of repenting and coming to God. Prodigal son, the lost coin, the sheep. In the parable of the prodigal son who squanders his father's money, here we have a manager that squanders his boss's money. But in the parable of the prodigal son, there is forgiveness. There is repentance. I know there isn't repentance and forgiveness 
in our particular story today, but when you take the whole unit as one and you read it as one, you can see that, of course, we can also repent and find forgiveness, especially if we've been unwise in handling the resources that God has given to us, if we have squandered it, if we've not been thoughtful with how we have used it, if we haven't been using it to serve others, we can also repent and commit, recommit our lives to Christ in that sense. Because, you know, Christ died for sins, including the sins of mishandling his property. He died for and paid for those sins too. So Christians are stewards. And with what is given to us, we should have the foresight of this manager, but not his f wasteful attitude um, and not his faithless heart. And that is what Jesus is teaching. Very complex passage. Be wise with our wealth, generous in fact, and be uncompromising in your loyalty to God. We're going to sing a hymn, a closing hymn in a minute. Take my life and let it be. This is a poem that was written by um, a woman called Frances Havergal, who lived in the 1800s and died at the age of 42. And um, the story, you know, the, the way they write about her is that she, she le led a life that was always seeking to be sort of fully consecrated to God. Um, she wanted to be pure in all aspects of her life. If we want to live for God, every aspect of our lives must be surrendered to him, including the area of our silver and gold whatever possessions we have. So let's sing this, this hymn together. Let's mean it, and let's walk away from this teaching, not just thinking, okay, maybe we know a little bit more about this complex parable, but actually, if we've taken what it says, let's go out and let's, let's do it, because that's what we're supposed to do. And, and, and let us be filled with a, a commitment in our hearts to do as the Lord asks. Let me just close in prayer, and then we'll sing our song. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its riches. Lord, there are passages in it that are simple to follow and understand. There are passages that are difficult. But Lord, you speak to us through your word in all circumstances. And I pray, Lord, that what we have heard today and whatever we've taken, taken from it, Lord, I pray that we'll walk away and be obedient to your will, Lord. And that we'll surrender our lives uh, every aspect of our lives, especially the area of money and possessions, an area that most of us, many of us, guard jealously ourselves, Lord. Let us release that to your care, Lord, and to carry out our duties faithfully uh, and let that spill over into all our areas of our lives for, so that we can be faithful stewards, unlike the steward we read of here today. And that, Lord, in being faithful to you, in serving one another, Father, that many will be drawn to your kingdom through the witness uh, uh, that we display as your stewards, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.